Hey, thanks for finding us. The Toronto Today podcast for Thursday, December the 2nd comes your way now. We start by talking about a story that's real disturbing from Alberta, but there's people in Ontario that certainly have opinions about accountability and not just for the present, but for the past as well, with the story of a teacher now deceased who allegedly abused 200 kids in the public school system. He stayed at the same public school. We'll talk about the different layers of that issue. Bruce Arthur joins us from the Toronto Star. Marcy Ian, Liberal MP, joins us as well to talk not just about the pandemic, but the travel ban, but the unanimous vote to ban conversion therapy in Canada. That and much, much more. Toronto Today begins now. Let me start here with a story that I think we all can relate to, um, and it's about accountability and how we've had to make uh, people and ourselves more accountable. Now, remember, in the school system, sometimes that's a little bit of a struggle. Um, For those who don't know, I, I grew up with both my parents as teachers, and I'd often hear them complain about the system and the system of all they really complain about about their jobs, um, although I didn't think uh, I think when I told my dad that uh, if I added up all the vacation time he had as a teacher versus my vacation time, I'd have to work something like 130 years in radio to match his vacation time um, or it'd have to be John Oakley. It's one or the other. I'm not sure which. <laughs> hey, you, he gets a, he gets the va- he uses a lot of vacation time because he gets a lot of vacation time. It's just that simple. Um, but. He'd always complain about the lack of accountability with bad teachers. And I don't mean bad teachers just from a, um, you know, standard level, um, because I think we can agree. And I think every teacher I hear from, I hear from teachers pretty regularly because we talk about schools um, so frequently with it being such a hot button issue right now. I'm going to get to something in the eight o'clock hour about my kid's school that I, I his high school that my youngest will go to next year. I don't. I don't understand it. I'm. The more I've thought about it, sometimes the more you think about something, you calm down a little bit. But the more I think about it, the more riled up I get. But the concept was: what happens with bad teachers who get into bad situations, as in even illegal situations or inappropriate relationships with students or even each other as faculty? Well. Oftentimes, there's not the accountability is, well, we just move that teacher to another school or we just ignore it. And in Alberta, they've got a massive, massive story here. Again, with how busy everything is, how focused we are on the here and now and getting through the day by day, stories like this you can miss. But uh, here's the headline in the Toronto Star. Alberta Education Minister slams association in wake of allegations that one teacher abused 200 children. You remember what a story it was here in Toronto with Maple Leaf Gardens. Like, I don't even want to call it a scandal. A scandal is, like, to me, a scandal is, um, you know, some kind of celebrity affair. Or a scandal is, to be honest, like a celebrity, like a child out of wedlock or something. It's Brad Pitt, you know, leaving Jennifer Aniston for Angelina Jolie. I struggle with scandal because this is perpetual, constant Um, manipulation, exploitation, and horrific, monstrous abuse is what it is. I struggle with scandal here as a word, Um, but they found out uh, a $40 million proposed class action lawsuit was filed alleging a man named Michael Gregory, a former junior high teacher, had a pattern of abuse, 200 children involved between 1989 and 2005. At a junior high in Calgary. He never, ever left that school. So the suit has named his estate. This person died this year. Uh, Michael Gregory did. 
and the Calgary Board of Education are defendants. So you can imagine the Calgary Board of Education, like you think about what public schools and, uh, and you know, you can pick any board here, TDSB, DDSB, the Catholic School Board. They don't have $40 million sitting around in a, in a filing cabinet to hand out in a class action lawsuit. But this seems to have not just legs to it, but potential uh, to be incredibly costly. I don't know how the insurance works in a scenario like this either. They investigated Gregory in 2006 and found that he had abused children. That's the Alberta Teachers Association. Um, information in 2006 was not passed over to police. So right there, we got a problem. This is 15 years ago. 15 years ago. And first time I've heard about it, first time you've probably heard about it as well. Um, so the education minister, and I know you're going to give a giant, well, yeah, of course, when I read you this quote, but I don't know what else she can say now. She's not responsible for somebody not flipping this information to the cops in 2006. Um, education minister Adriana Lagrange told reporters yesterday, as clearly highlighted by this case, the teacher discipline process needs to be improved. Yes. But again, I can't lay that at her doorstep. All I can do is talk about now. She also went on to say she fully expects, quote, in any instance involving criminal allegations or potentially criminal behavior, the Alberta Teachers Association and school authorities bring that information to the proper authorities as soon as possible. So I've got two thoughts on this. One is, and you can text me at 289-975-1640 if you have thoughts, the idea of an open and clear process in cases even like this, is blocked by a lot of bureaucracy. A lot of bureaucracy. And teachers will tell you that. They don't want to say it often publicly that boards get in the way of this. Unions get in the way of this. And you know where I, like, you know where I stand on almost every issue with teachers. Public education is a uh, an absolute, you know, it's a diamond that we have to protect and shield and polish, Okay. It's okay to want to go to the private system. Many people will say the private system is better for me. I was a private school kid for one year. It didn't work. I came back to the public school system. Um, I went to private school in fifth grade. Um, it, it just wasn't what I wanted to be, to be doing, and my parents, uh, as teachers, agreed with that. So we found the right fit for me in school. Um, but this is a huge, huge problem here. And for the help. So what, what we need to do then and now is look back and go, how did this not get to the proper authorities? Who did this? Who covered this up? And unfortunately, um, I have a uh, I have a link to this as well. In that, I went to a uh, school for OAC. I wanted to get done in one semester, and my school wasn't a semestered school, so I went to grade thirteen, as it were, but just for a half year to Oak Ridge Secondary School in London. And it, there was a phys ed teacher named Bob Bridgman. And he coached uh, some of the teams, and and I knew him. He knew my first name. I'd say hi to him. I played uh, tennis and badminton that year, but he was like a basketball volleyball coach. So I didn't have a ton of interaction with him, and he didn't teach me. Um, he became later a convicted sex offender um, because he transferred from London to Pickering. Now, that's an odd one. Why would he transfer from London to Pickering? Did I know anything about Bob Bridgman? Did I hear a story about Bob Bridgman when I was at Oak Ridge? No, I didn't. But two years later, while I was still at Oak, or sorry, after I'd graduated from Oak Ridge and was going to Western, I heard stories about Bob Bridgman, okay, and boys that went to school. These are about boys, not girls. So I'm reading this story that he was a, quote, respected teacher and football coach for 20 years. 
But if I heard a story about him in 1992 and later it comes to fruition that he transfers from London to Pickering, that's a little strange to me. And no, it wasn't strange to think something was up. Charges of child sexual abuse were laid against Bob Bridgman in 2000. In 2002, he was convicted of sexual assault and gross indecency. He sexually exploited a boy over a six-year period in the 1980s. I went to school there in 89. I don't know anything about it. Like I said, I didn't hear anything about it until maybe 92. He got 18 months in jail. Now, listen, that's nothing the teachers can do. That seems paltry to me. That seems ludicrous to me. Because guess what? He got out and he reoffended again. He got 18 months in jail, got a concurrent four-month sentence. Another four, a second victim, a former student, came forward and he got a suspended four-month sentence for a charge of gross indecency. I couldn't tell you what that is. I don't know what it was. And two years later, it took two years for his teaching license to be revoked. I need you to think about that. The teaching license for a convicted pedophile was not revoked until two years later. Oh, well, that's about bureaucracy, and then this happens, and that, well, let's change that. I'm hearing your excuse or explanation, but let's figure this out. So this doesn't keep happening, and we don't have a repeated cycle here. There will be people that get into these lines of work. You know this is true, because we just talked for, what was the biggest story six weeks ago? Kyle Beach and the uh, trainer with the Chicago Blackhawks, and the cover-up of Chicago Blackhawks management types, including the head coach Joel Quenville and the general manager Stan Bowman, who just wanted to sweep this away. And what did they do? What did they do for the coach of Kyle, or the uh, trainer of Kyle Beach, who allegedly raped him and assaulted him? They signed him a great letter of recommendation, and he went on his merry way somewhere else. And did he reoffend? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. In 2010, the guy that taught at my school, Bridgman, was charged again. He was living in Pickering, near where I live, this time for luring a child over the internet and meeting a 14-year-old boy in Niagara Falls. Honestly, honestly. Now, a 99.9% of teachers listening will say, we got to get the, it, it turns their stomach to hear this, and it turns their hump stomach to hear about the story in uh, Alberta. Of course it does. But we need to wind the clocks back a little bit. This isn't good enough now to deal with the proposed class action lawsuit. Alberta should be digging deep and whistleblowing and finding out who didn't pass this information on to police. Who allowed abuse to continue on a regular basis? If we want to do this with residential schools, and we should, we should also do this with our schools when it comes to abusers in the public school system. They exist. They walk amongst us. They've, they've, they are more than likely to reoffend. Michael Gregory did. Bob Bridgman in London and Pickering did. So what are we going to do about it? A big, big day in the House of Commons yesterday. And uh, politics is politics sometimes. We all get that. The politicians get that. But uh, a surprisingly unanimous uh, story here. And, and some would say long overdue, but it's about it getting done now. And there's only so much uh, new MPs, new politicians can do about the past. Got to focus on the present. Got to focus on where we're going, not where we've been. And uh, a conservative motion that pushed through uh, an anti-conversion therapy bill through house of commons some conservatives voted against it a good number of them in june and it caused a lot of tension a lot of rancor in the middle of the summer uh but unanimously approved and there's more how would i put it global momentum uh to ban this what 
I, I guess the best way I can put it is if you do the reading on uh, conversion therapy, it it goes from, you know, religious concepts of, well, we, we can we can pray away the gay. I don't think I'm, uh, you know, out of line using that phrase. That's what is utilized uh, to borderline electric shocks. And it's awful. And it's the concept that being gay or transgender is some form of mental illness that can be cured. And we've come a long, long, long way in a short amount of time. And sometimes I think we got to be grateful and understanding that um, as many problems uh, that we have and as many things that divide us and as many things that need to get better, there's we, we won the lottery by being born here. We did. We got to make things better, but we won the lottery by being born here because a lot of countries are still quite archaic uh, with these practices and these beliefs. Very happy to bring on uh, Marcy Ian, who's the Minister for Women and Gender Equality and Youth uh, and the Member of Parliament for Toronto Centre. It's great to have you on. I, I think I have that right. That was a that was a special day yesterday. Again, um, politics will be politics sometimes, but I, I just I, I just think sometimes things are right and sometimes things are wrong but depending on policy. Good morning, Greg. And you are absolutely right. This is what can happen when all parties come together. Unanimous consent. And as you rightly characterized, this was not the situation just some months ago. But when we come together, look what can happen. The uh, Randy Bosino is the uh, tourism minister and is gay. There have been, you know, I, when I was a kid and, and when you were a kid, uh, Sven Robinson was the lone openly gay MP uh, out of uh, British Columbia in and the NDP. And we think about the struggles he must have had and the things that must have been so difficult about being out. And now it is easier, but but passage of a bill like this, whether you want to be a politician or on TV like you were on the radio like I was and a pro athlete, it's it, it makes it much easier than it was to move those steps forward 30 years ago, 20 years ago. Well, this is where, you know, we really need to shout out uh, Randy Bozino and Rob Oliphant and a lot of, you know, the, the politicians and the activists in the community. I represent Toronto Centre and I see every day the activists and the organizations that have laid the groundwork for this, Greg. This just mm. didn't happen overnight. And when Randy was elected, the prime minister made him... Uh, the uh, advisor for the LGBTQ2S community. So Randy has laid this groundwork. This has happened over many years, but it's really about listening to community. And this bill actually was stronger than the previous one. And the reason it was stronger, Greg, is because there were so many witnesses that went before the Justice Committee and told their stories. And listen, my, my previous career is about listening to people mm -hmm. like you, connecting with people, listening to stories. The stories were horrific. Yeah. One of the young men, Matt Ashcroft, who, who, is, who lives in my riding, was 24 years old when he was subjected to conversion therapy. And in his words, it broke him. He has never been the same. And somehow, somehow Greg found the power to become an activist because he thought, I never want what has happened to me. And he's now 31 and still grappling with this. I never want what's happened to me to happen to mm. anyone else. Matt, Matt, and I, Matt and I are going to have a conversation tonight. We're going to do uh, an Instagram live at 7 p.m. tonight. Um, I've been talking to Matt for some time now. We've been sitting down and he's been telling 
me his story, and I want everyone who hasn't heard it to hear it tonight. Marcia, that's a, I, I, and we'll mention that uh, several times throughout the show after you uh, you depart. I'll make sure people uh, people head there because it is a very important conversation. Marcy Ian, our guest, Liberal MP, um, are you surprised the conservatives supported fast tracking this bill after what happened in June? Do they deserve a lot of credit on the leadership front for being here for this? Listen, it's about all parties and it's about doing the right thing. And you know what I think as well, Greg? It's about parties, party members. MPs reaching out across the lines. I know that I put the work in. I was I was talking to MPs uh, from all parties. I know that Minister Lametti was doing that. Others were doing that. This is where we come together. It's about talking and saying, "Listen, it, it's time. This needs to happen. This is what people are telling us have happened to them." So mm. this is the culmination of a lot of conversations, Greg. A lot of conversations and about doing the right thing and being on the right side of history this time. Let me shift gears here to something uh, that's uh, near and dear to your heart, and that's parenting, same as me. And and you were quoted in a story over the weekend about new new info, about just how we all get that our lives have been turned upside down. But I, I feel like people of uh, people like you and me are, are kind of in the middle here. We've had to do a lot of lifting. At first, it was to preserve the health and welfare of people older than us, more vulnerable than us, more with comorbidities. I, I, I hope we're doing this. I struggle sometimes to think we're putting an equal emphasis on our kids. I really struggle with it sometimes. And uh, and that's not just teenagers. You know, you, we've talked about this. We have teenagers in my house, your house, and there's, there's a smaller runway. I understand someone who's got a kid who's three or four saying, oh, what's the rush? Let's just wait this out. And I'm like, I'm losing time. And I feel it. I feel it every day. And you probably are, too. Yeah, absolutely. I am. And, you know, I I talked about my daughter, Blaze. Um, She's 17 years old and her struggles with mental health through this pandemic. And this is something, Greg, that we that we saw in in real time. You know, since since 2021, uh, we've made the largest ever investment in young Canadians, $13.1 billion. But it's the breakdown, right? People want to see uh, where where that's going. And some of that, and I'm really um, thankful for it and, and happy that we did it, is going to mental health care counselors. So this would be, you know, counselors that would support the needs of of BIPOC students uh, and others because we've seen that BIPOC and Indigenous kids have been disproportionately impacted at post-secondary institutions across the country. And and as well, I've been working with my cabinet colleagues, including Minister Bennett. Uh, She is the first minister responsible for mental health and addictions in this country as to what we can do together. And on top of that, a lot of this is about jobs lost jobs that couldn't, um, that just weren't there. And so I am pleased to announce that I am responsible for the Canada Summer Jobs Program. That's 100,000 jobs for kids to get, you know, some skills and and to get paid for them in the summer. So really looking forward to doing some kids things because you're right, Greg. Um, We've rightly focused on our seniors, but we need to focus on young people more. They are our future. And this is a government that has been listening to kids, to youth from the very from the very beginning. That's great news. Marcy is our guest, uh, Liberal MP. Um, I, I'm not asking you to speak to this as a matter of policy, but you've never been shy with your opinions. When you look at things that Blaze and other kids her age and her demographic can and can't do, 
um, some things are are kind of maddening, right? Uh, we, we, you know, we have, uh, you know, we reopened Massey Hall. Everybody's there to see Gordon Lightfoot. We're going to get concerts back. We got screaming fans at Leafs and Raptors games now. And and I struggle that, you know, fully vaccinated high school kids can't have a high school dance. I had one um, a woman tell me yesterday, well, but, but you know, COVID could spread and there's handshake. But then, then we should want to, why should we have university kids in residences? What do we think they're doing in residences? They're hanging out together and they're doing things and they're going on dates and they're in rooms. And they're having parties. So it's, we've got so many things that feel contradictory, not just, not just to logic, but to our kids' development. Yeah, you know what? There's there's so much work, Greg, uh, to be done. Blaze says the same thing to me every time. You know, she says, I'm not even sure we can have a grad, and she's in her last year of high school. Oh. And really, I just I just keep saying, you know what, honey? Um, toe the line. Do what we have to do. Masking is important. Everybody needs to be vaccinated. Do what we can do so that we can get back to whatever normal is sooner rather than later. I got about 60 seconds here. I know I'm sure you've had a lot of constituents ask you about the federal travel ban. Um, are you hopeful this is this is for a brief period of time? This is short term, not in the long term. We need more information about Omicron. We've got our best people, not just in Canada, but across the globe working on it. And we're all hoping for some of the information that we've gotten. Some of the data has been positive. Friday was a really dark day, I think, for a lot of us. But um, are you hoping this is absolutely something that uh, that doesn't last very long? Here's what I can tell you. Mm-hmm. The situation is always fluid. When we get updates, those updates can change daily. So, you know, hoping things change for the positive. We just have to keep doing what we're doing, but we put things in place to protect people. That's what this is about and to get ahead of this. We don't want to be behind it. We want to be ahead of it. So it's, it's listen, it's a fluid situation and we'll act in the best interest of Canadians always. Marcy Ian is the Minister for Women and Gender Equality and Youth at Instagram Live. Uh, find her on there at 7 o'clock tonight. That important conversation about putting um, the despicable practice of uh, of conversion therapy into uh, into the, the past and not the present and certainly not the future. Marcy, thank you for making the time for our listeners. I always appreciate it. You're always welcome. Oh, Greg, I appreciate you. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You got it. Thanks very much. Marcy Ian, uh, the Member of Parliament for Toronto Centre. Let's get right into it. Ben Rothenberg uh, from the New York Times. Such big news yesterday with the WTA deciding for Peng Shui, the uh, at times missing erstwhile tennis player. They say uh, they say she's fine. Uh, the IOC says that. She said that in a couple video interviews. But a really interesting scenario here. So Steve Simon, the WGA chairman and CEO, said we're out. We're out of China for the time being until we get better answers, until we get more of a response from either Peng or the Chinese government. Ben Rothenberg joins me now. It was more a case of uh, of maybe if rather than when. The WTA was very firm on this, unlike the IOC, that they, they needed more answers on, on where Peng Shui was. Those were some pretty strong lines in the sand to draw that I think kind of made this a bit inevitable what happened today. You know, I don't think China was going to concede uh, giving up those things or giving access to Peng Shui or concessions that the WTA had demanded. And the Steve Simon, the CEO of the WTA, had said from the jump that, you know, if necessary, he was prepared to pull the business out of China. And he made good on that today. It's a suspension. It's, it's a, you know, mm-hmm. so not permanent. It's not like it's not a full removal, but a pretty, a pretty strong step. And especially with the 
2022 calendar still being a bit in flux. So it'll be inter- interesting to see with the suspension how how long they sort of give China to respond or how quickly they start giving those weeks in the calendar uh, and some of the big sanctions to the pretty elite WTA tournaments that happen in China uh, to other other cities, other countries. Does this change um, a perception of Steve Simon in the tennis world or among people um, in the WTA, the players themselves, or is this, is this on brand? Is this, is this, is this advocacy and this putting your money where your mouth is um, reflective of, of what he's attempted to bring for the WTA? I think this is a unique moment and a very defining moment for him. I don't think honestly, there had been sort of challenges like this that he had risen to before. Just There also hadn't been sort of the stakes presented. I think this was a very unique situation they had with a player making these sort of accusations against a government official. Uh, Very unique situation. And she wasn't, honestly, even a very active player. She hadn't played in more than a year. So arguably a former player, but or an active player at least. But Steve Simon really stood by her and advocated for her and really made this a a defining moment for himself and really rose to the occasion. I think he's getting a ton of respect within the sport. Uh, the women in the sport that I've talked to have all been very, very supportive of this and very proud of him as a leader. And I think he's a pretty mild-mannered, uh, quiet, unassuming leader for the most part. I think this was not something he's not known for grandstanding whatsoever or anything like that. Uh, so I think they're maybe a bit surprised by his strength on this in some ways. And they feel like maybe they underestimated his resolve in that sense. And then also, I know a lot of the men are also on the ATP have also been very impressed with the women and 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 beyond the sport too, lots of, you know, politicians and, and human rights activists and things like that have been full of praise for Steve Simon as well. So I think that it's been a surprising decision, an unprecedented decision, but also a very popular decision in a lot of ways too. I think he's getting a lot of support for that. And what's going to be interesting mm-hmm. to see is if that support that he's getting vocally from people actually turns into support for women's tennis as it finds itself being suddenly a bit of a, a free agent or a refugee uh, in the market and now looking to try to fill the spots and the void and the monetary void left by by China being a uh, a no go right now. Ben Rothenberg, uh, Ben Rothenberg is our guest. You can uh, read his tennis work in the New York Times. Also, senior editor of Racket Magazine on Toronto today on Global News Radio six forty Toronto. You follow the tour long enough, um, and and I've uh, been a fan and. It's it, it, events move all the time. I remember my first ever visit to Madison Square Garden was in November, and the women used to have their end of end of season tournament there, and it was great. It was right before Thanksgiving weekend, um, and you know the men's used to be at the London O2. So so yeah. events do move, but when we yeah. look at the schedule for our listeners that don't follow it, like uh, certainly you do, and to some extent me, the um, they play a ton in China. They play the season ender in China. They go right there after the U S open. They're there in January. There is a ton of spots. Can this, um, can this capital, can this revenue be made up? Are there other nations and other major world cities going, we'll, we'll just, we'll just be able to hop over here instead, or is this money that's down the train if they don't replace it? You're right. So the event you're alluding to the year end championships, which was in Madison Square Garden for a while, has moved to a few different cities had just signed a 10 year deal to be held in Shenzhen, China, starting in 2019. There's actually only been one edition of the event held there so far in 2019 uh, because 2020 was canceled because of the pandemic. In 2021, also, uh, no events are being held. No international sporting events are being held in China uh, this year. So it got moved to Guadalajara, uh, where actually had a very nice turnout and, and was actually a pretty likable, fun event that the players got a lot of support from and really good crowd. Really impressive what they did there on very short notice in Guadalajara uh, to get to get the event there. Uh, you know, But there is a ton of stake in China, basically, the tour more or less relocates all its big events after the U.S. Open now in China. 
Uh, so the U.S. Open ends, you know, second week of September, roughly. And then basically the tour picks up and moves to China and has two of its nine biggest regular tour events. Uh, so equivalent basically to the uh, Canadian Open or the Rogers Cup or yeah. national, whatever it's called now in Toronto. We're Canadian <laughs> listeners. It's, it's hard national, for Canadians to keep track. National Bank Open, I think. Uh, whatever, <laughs> yeah, it is, one, it is. one of those top nine events. So China has two of those in Wuhan and in Beijing in the fall. And then they also have the year in championships now in Shenzhen. Um, or they had, I should say, past tense because they're now suspended. Uh, so those are some big sanctions that are up for grabs. And it'll be interesting to see what markets swoop into these opportunities. We've seen a few actually already in 2021, a few of the sanctions for Chinese tournaments that were not held just because of the pandemic. Uh, some of the smaller ones, but got picked up and a lot of markets were able to uh, raise their hands and, and stage events on pretty short notice, like San Diego in the U.S., Chicago, Naomi Osaka, obviously a huge star for the sport. From Japan, uh, Japan is already part of the sort of fall calendar of the tour, a little bit nowhere near as big as China, but they also probably could have some unstated appetite for more events that they would be happy to take from, from China and keep a bit of a foothold for the WTA in the Asian market at all. And those are pretty distinct separate markets uh, culturally. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see. I, 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 hope, I just hope that this goodwill that Steve Simon has generated from the world community, from the sports community more largely, and from businesses and politicians and whatever else, I hope that that finds a way uh, that those, you know, the good deed doesn't, you know, get punished essentially that, you know, mm. that people do support women's tennis uh, from a financial stake or an investment stake, uh, not just through, uh, you know, sort of patting them on the back saying good job and, and leaving them out on their own. And they're sort of in a little bit of a time of need. I don't think it's a desperate time of need for women's tennis. I think they're, they'll be okay. Uh, will not cease to be a sport or anything like that. But they certainly uh, could use uh, some some good safe havens going forward. Yeah, I would think that, and and you you opine as well. Um, and uh, it's it's a great take that Steve Simon can't step out and do this without almost universal support of the players. Not just not just the current players on the tour who have talked about this right, right from basically the immediate absence of Peng Shui. This hasn't this has been going on about three weeks now, but it's been Billie Jean King, it's been Martina yeah. Navratilova. Th- those two those two are at odds about a lot of things right now, including um, trans athletes. They they differ considerably on that, but it's a pretty united front here to say maybe we shouldn't be in this country. Yeah, you're right. I, I think for the most part, I think the women's tennis players of past and present uh, and many of the biggest stars at the moment are past or inactive currently at like the Williams sisters who haven't played much in the last last half of this year. Um, I, I think that they are pr- a pretty united front. And I think people really, really saw and respected the reasons why Steve Simon was making this stand. It wasn't about you know, some of the other reasons that people have for making stands against China, which are very valid, you know, the uh, internment of the, the Uyghur people in, in Western China and other sorts of human rights offenses that are going on there and other sorts of anti-democratic things that happen there. This was directly about someone who Steve Simon called in his first, one of his first interviews about this, a member of the WTA family in Peng Shui, you know, one of their own and, and standing up for an individual and for her well-being over, over profit, I think made that framing of that that he had from the beginning, I think made this a very, very easy issue for people to get on board with. And yes, there are certain players, I'm sure, especially active players and some who do particularly well in China, maybe, uh, who will be disappointed to have their bank accounts not have that really, you know, a substantial flow of income that you get from some of these Chinese tournaments, which had really big purses, not always great attendance or anything. It's sort of this weird mix of being often pretty empty stadiums for a lot of the tournaments. And then big paydays. It was a weird optic optically in China, aside from everything else, because uh, tennis is still 
a bit of an upstart sport there, even though yeah. they have had a lot of investment in it from a lot of regional governments looking to get their cities on the map. I mean, that was the first time I ever heard of Wuhan before any of the coronavirus stuff was because they bought themselves a big tennis tournament. Um, mm. You know, so it's going to be interesting to see how uh, those players, if there is any resentment towards it, because if there, if there is a real meaningful financial dip, but I don't think there will be hugely. I mean, yes, the year on championships this year dipped from a total purse pool in Shenzhen of 14 million to 5 million in Guadalajara. So that's, that's more than 50%, but it's also still 5 million. And these are, those are the, you know, cream of the tour basically again. Yeah. So I think really the, to use a tennis analogy, the ball is in a lot of other people's courts including other sports organizations around the world uh, to step up and say, Hey, women's tennis, we think you're worth investing in for these reasons and we're supporting and also just a good business and a good product. I mean, it is the biggest women's sport in the world and has been for a very long time. Uh, let's, uh, let's do business. Ben one of those things, Ben Rothenberg uh, joining us on uh, global news radio, 640 Toronto. I wanted to play a clip on the show yesterday before uh, we chat with Bruce, and it's great for Bruce to hear it as well. But Abdu Sharkawi was on the show. Dr. Sharkawi uh, joined me, and he talked about, he certainly advocated for boosters, which we're going to talk about, uh, and his, that announcement's coming today for 50+. plus. But he said there is no appetite. There's no appetite for two things right now. Talk of lockdowns, talk of schools being closed en masse. Here's his comments from yesterday. I couldn't agree more. There's absolutely no excuse for a lockdown. Again, we have the tools, we have the information, we have the systems in place. A lockdown would be unforgivable. It shouldn't happen, plain and simple. And we know what we do to improve school safety mm -hmm. as well, especially in terms of improving ventilation standards. And, and if we get our kids vaccinated at a decent clip, it shouldn't happen. So I'm, I'm, guardedly optimistic that uh, those are things we can ward off. Okay, that's from yesterday's Toronto Today, Dr. Abdu Sharkawi. Now, he does believe the Leafs can win multiple playoff rounds at some point. So why should we trust him about infectious diseases? I don't know. Uh, Bruce Arthur, our friend from the uh, Toronto Star, uh, joins us now. This was my point as well, um, is that I don't know. I think when there was political capital to be gained about keeping people safe and certainly protecting our elderly and 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 holding on, like kind of running running the ball up the middle until the vaccines were available, there was merit certainly in lockdowns. How do you think it would be viewed if if restrictions were really yanked back, the Ford government is doing everything they can to, well, get elected next June. That won't sit well if things are delayed. Are, are they full on in an endemic phase right now in your mind? A lot of this is riding, I think, on Kieran Moore, uh, because having a different chief medical officer of health is different. It, it is fundamentally. And you can see that the policies, stuff like this announcement mm -hmm. happened faster and are more progressive, I would say, than when David Williams was the CMOH. Uh, I, I totally agree that there's no appetite for more lockdowns. I, I think I think people get used to what how they live. And I think at this point, oh, everyone's tired. I'm tired. You're tired. Yeah. Everyone's exhausted by this. But I, the thing I keep saying is the virus doesn't get tired. It's like swimming in, in deep water, right? Like water doesn't get tired either. And so in terms of what Abdu said, and I have a lot of respect for Abdu, mm -hmm. in terms of the tools to contain this thing, the thing is I agree with that, absolutely. The problem that if we have a lockdown in Ontario, it will be because the province allowed, it kind of set the rules of the game, which is there are still enough unvaccinated people in the province to cause a serious problem for the health system. And we decided to pretend that wasn't so. And those two things 
would be the problem. I, I hope not. I hope we manage to sail through it. But there's 350,000 Ontarians who are 50 plus who haven't been vaccinated. And if the virus finds them, then things could happen fast. But when do we stop? And I'm sure it's a question you've asked yourself. When do we stop uh, asking ourselves, our parents, certainly our kids? When do we ask all those people to stop protecting the unvaccinated people who've had 11 months? Like we know now, Bruce, this is not about access anymore. This isn't about I can't get any time off work. Nobody believes like that's. That's that might have been true in March and April. It certainly was for a lot of our essential workers. When do we say we have to move along? We can't we can't protect the unvaccinated people anymore. In order to do that, though, you need a government that is a little more serious about protecting vaccinated people. Like the fact that this government has already said that the vaccine passport could expire as soon start to expire as soon as January 17th. That's a signal to anti-vaxxers that, no, you don't have to do anything about this. You don't have to actually get vaccinated. The fact that there's no health care mandate, the fact that there are no mandates beyond long-term care, that is a signal to anti-vaxxers. And that's what Ontario has, I think, the second or third highest proportion of unvaccinated people who are 12 older after Alberta and Saskatchewan of all the provinces. Like, mm-hmm. I agree that unvaccinated people, the vast majority of them are making a choice that shows that they have a re- they, they either have institutional mistrust or they just can't comprehend the world. They're just being fed bad information and they don't know how to tell the difference. But there are still enough of them that it can cause problems for the vaccinated. That's the thing. We can't just say, well, open every, if we say open everything up, take off the masks, let's go. Our hospitals will be in the, in the swamp. I agree. Yeah. Christmas, by Christmas, maybe, maybe mid January. Like it would, it would really happen fast. If you look what's happened in Europe. So, it's a difficult situation. This is why I keep saying we need them. The boosters are good. The thing they're going to do with boosters today is good. Eventually, we're all going to get an opportunity to take a third shot booster, and we should all take advantage of that. But until you get more robust you know, vaccine passport situation, mandate situation, and eventually immunization, because we don't know how many boosters we're going to have to take, and that's just life for you. That's what this government should be focusing on. Where else could we mandate that we haven't already? I agree with you. There's spots, but I want to know if ours are, are line up in synchronicity. Where else could we mandate? What could we do? I mean, you have to start with the idea that if you have congregate settings, indoor settings, you should have to have a vaccine to be in there. And so does that mean office work? Yeah, quite possibly. Big companies, like a company with a, like a factory. Factory, you should probably have to be we've seen from the pandemic, you should probably have to be vaccinated. Um, police, teachers, uh, eventually you need health, all of health care. I don't, I don't completely, I, I, I partly understand why they didn't mandate all of health care, but they still should have mandated all of health care. Um, and then you need to go from there. Like, honestly, you need to create spaces. Um, I think the right loves to use this idea, safe space. Oh, this is a safe space for you. Even though <laughs> right wing media is its own, like, very comforting, angry silo. Um, but the idea of creating spaces that have minimal risk is why we don't have smoking sections in restaurants anymore. 
And this is, should be like that. But it's also, it's the only reason. You're right. And and there were people pushing back, um, and I didn't understand it. Uh, at, well, we don't need a vaccine policy to go to, you know, Leafs and Raptors games and restaurants and gyms. And I'm like, that's the only reason people are going. That's the only reason you're getting people still paying 140 bucks to see the Grizzlies and Raptors on a Tuesday night is they feel safe. So it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm I'm vaccinated. I'm with other vaccinated people. That makes me confident. I mean, we got an 83 year old man singing on stage, and people are singing back to him. And people felt good about that Thursday, Friday night, Friday, Saturday at Massey Hall. But to your point, it's not the government's played this game with the vaccine. Like this is when you can do it. But look at all the companies. There's Metrolinks. Oh, we're gonna delay this another month, and and you don't have to be vaccinated now till till late December. Education, Bruce. If I told you, if I told you that more cops, percentage wise. In, in with the Toronto police would get vaccinated than TDSB workers six months ago. You that that's like a that's the U.S. that's miracle on ice. We need Al Michaels. That we never would have predicted that, but it's true by ten percent. Well, and I'm actually okay with with a, a little bit of flexibility on the dates on mandates because mandates need to come with education. They need to come with education and outreach. Because here's the thing: if you're unvaccinated and you're listening to me right now, and you say this guy hates me, I don't. You think this guy wants to make my life hell? I don't. I want to help save your life or, sa- or make you safer in your life. That's the, th- that's the thing here, is vaccines have been proven to be not risk-free, but immensely safe and effective. And the, the problem you get with the vaccine passport, that if you want to defraud our vaccine passport in Ontario, and you want to work a little bit to do so, you'll do it. It's really not that hard to do. All you have to do is print out the papers and just change them a little bit in Photoshop and you can have them. Um, that is a big problem, and it's why we, again, when I talk about a more durable system, Manitoba gives you a plastic card to walk around with. That's what we should have. You should have a or, or something on yeah. your health card that says, I'm vaccinated, and it has to stay updated because fully vaccinated pretty soon is going to be three shots. I, I get Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star joining us. I, I guess I, I link it like... You know how how what a hold addiction gets on people. It doesn't matter alcohol, gambling, uh, drugs, whatever. And eventually, you and I see this in sports all the time that a team just says, "Enough's enough." You know, Daryl Strawberry, Steve Howe. Uh, you know, I, I can't. Bob Probert. The Red Wings are like, "That's it. Like we we can't we can't handle this anymore." Guys get kicked out of bands for that kind of stuff. And I feel that that's I understand that lack of patience now with people on your street, my street, at my kid's school, your kid's school, saying, "How long are you asking my ten year old who who may be vac- fully vaccinated?" And I again, I'm you and I have talked about masks, argued a little bit about it, but I would say. Once that window's over, once you've allowed the 5 to 11s to all make their choice, then the other people are making their choice not to. And then we're 25, 26 months into this, right? Well, and, and one thing, and I wrote about this a week and a half ago, is, or two weeks ago, anti-vaxxers are really difficult to deal with. There's a one at our school. And so one thing that happened in my kids' elementary school playground is they said, okay, you, you kids are getting hit in the head with snowballs a lot. We're not going to let kids throw snowballs at each other anymore, especially with the difference in size between some mm-hmm. kids, right? And so they said, we're, but we're going to set up targets for all the kids, and it's going to be fun, <laughs> and then you're going to be able to throw snowballs at the targets. Now, you can agree or disagree that this is a cool or not cool thing. The, the, the local super anti-vaxxer mom at my kid's elementary school called it pure evil, <laughs> damaging the children, right? So I don't know how you have a conversation with somebody like that. And I, again, I, I think at some point you have to have a huge amount of outreach 
um, to those who are unvaccinated because everyone is a symptom. Everyone has been either victimized by misinformation or victimized by a system that they no longer trust. And once you have that in your mind, it's hard to get it out. And at, at some point, you're right, we're going to have to leave the unvaccinated behind, but not until there's less of them, not until there's fewer of them. Are we, we can't. We can't. No, no. Are, are we coming around to where, um, boy, what, Le- LeBron James fully vaccinated, uh, test positive. We're seeing a ton more athletes. We're seeing, we, we, we're seeing maybe what we didn't predict. I don't know if you and I would have predicted uh, NHL games being, um, you know, postponed, the Ottawa, uh, the Islanders. So I do wonder, and I'm, I'm seeing cases rise, but I'm also seeing cases rise in states that we'd call blue states that have kind of strict mask mandates. Michigan is a blue state. They have had a mask mandate. I'm not going to defend Florida. Like, don't make me do that. And I won't do that. As I said, many people are dead that should be alive in Florida. And you wouldn't say that about Michigan or Massachusetts or Vermont. But a lot of these, a lot of these states are really strict with masks and they've got cases skyrocketing through the roof. So to me, fully vaxxed, you know, mask mandate, it's not stopping the cases, is it? Okay, so here's where we disagree, my friend Greg Brady. <laughs> Settle in, buddy. Um, Michigan is 59% fully vaccinated. Like even in a blue state where you win 60-40, and it's a blowout, 40% of your population is un- potentially like, 40% of your population is more prone to being unvaccinated. Like in Michigan, 40% of the population is, uh, what is it, like, uh, like eight million, four million people. Yeah. Oh no, no. Michigan population is like more like nine, nine million people. Yeah, so, so, and that means if sixty percent is pot is is vaccinated, three million people are unvaccinated. Like that's a problem. Well, this was the problem with Alberta, and then everybody said, "Well, is Ontario going to become an Alberta?" And I think you and I would agree on this. No, it's impossible. We're too fully vaccinated for us to become Alberta after Alberta was Alberta in the summer. It wasn't going to happen. Sure, but what else did Alberta do? They took mask mandates off and they signaled to everybody that everything was fine. And everybody, act, a lot of people acted like it was fine and their cases went through the roof in the summer. But their vaccination rate's the big, but yes, you're right, but their vaccination rate's the biggest issue. It's the biggest oh, yeah, issue. 100%, but there's no one issue. That's the, the, the problem with this is the, the, the closest thing to one issue is vaccination. But until we get vaccination to a really high level, then... It's just, it's not enough. And it sucks. Like if, we, if we're at nearly 90% of the 12 plus population in Ontario, it would be great if we could say, you know what, that's good. We're done. We're safe. But we're not. Hospitals aren't safe. The, the report mm-hmm. by the Ontario, the Ontario Science Table earlier this week, we don't have a lot of extra capacity. We don't have a lot of, a lot of safety mm-hmm. net in the hospital system right now. Like, and that's always been a limiting factor in Ontario where we don't have a lot of extra beds anyway. So right now in Ontario, yeah. again, we're being held hostage in, in part by those who refuse to get vaccinated. And that, that's the, the, the long and the short of it. The most important part mm-hmm. of it is that is the situation. And the government has allowed that to happen a little more than it should. By the way, we got to go, but let, I'll leave you with this. Uh, I know you know about the MLB lockout overnight. How happy is Vladimir Guerrero Jr. that it's now not legal for the team to check in on his offseason workouts? That guy is he's going to town in the next seven to ten days, man. He, he did great last night. He did, he did, but I know, but it takes patience. And, I, you know, I struggle with it. It's, you know, he, he might have a cheat day once. He might have a cheat week over the next couple of weeks. And it might last five uh, weeks. You don't know that. Personally, I've had approximately a year and a half <laughs> of cheating. So. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. could morph into Pablo Sandoval. And then, and then you know, the stuff's going to hit the fan with these Jays. Let's just be honest about it. <laughs>
<laughs> it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Great having you on, as always, Bruce. Thanks. See you, Brady. Bruce Arthur, Toronto Star. A um, really tragic story has taken maybe a turn that surprises some. Um, and I've been to this this place. Um, there's lots of places you can go go-kart riding. I will say if they take go-kart riding a lot seriously, a lot more seriously in the States, like leagues and all that. We were down in Florida with an extra day to kill after something else we were doing when our kids were smaller. And uh, and we, we went to try and go go-kart. And there's like, well, it's, it's men's league. And you're like... there's guys that just show up at two in the afternoon and they're like, yeah, you know, like there's standings and showdowns and like, do they try and run each other off the track? Are there rivalries like in NASCAR? Do they throw helmets at each other? Don't know if that's true or not. Um, But this is an unbelievably tragic story. This happened in Etobicoke at uh, 401 Mini Indy. A uh, Mississauga resident passed away. She was wearing a scarf while go-karting. This happened in September 2018. And uh, a huge fine, $600,000, like that'll break most businesses, is the fine levied after uh, after the investigation of this. And obviously, they've put the onus of uh, blame on uh, 401 Mini Indy for allowing the victim and her sister-in-law to ride without the scarves being secured. Uh, unbelievably frightening. Joanna Lavoie uh, wrote about this on uh, Toronto.com, and she joins me now. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for getting up early. I always need to say that, but uh, I don't know if you're a morning person or not. Well, you know how it is. I'll make the exception for you there, Greg, but uh, <laughs> um, I'm glad to be invited to be on your show. It, you. It's awesome to have you. Um, it's it's a it's a real surprising story. I think the the amount was was jarring um, to that the the go track uh, go kart track operator was fined um, by, and at the same time, I think some people would look and kind of waver on the idea of of personal responsibility to you know to have. Um, it's one thing if the helmet was faulty or the, or the, um, or the, or the car was faulty, but you do make the choice to wear that scarf. And if someone doesn't spot that you have it on, you know, you, you like it, it kind of falls. There's an element of individual responsibility here that I think some might push back on this particular ruling. Possibly, I guess. I think like I've noticed in a lot of different businesses and different line industries, they really are putting the onus back on the owners of the building, the mm-hmm. operator, the of the business. Pardon. Uh, so I guess I mean I, for, in some ways, I do believe that it, it is the owner of the the company that does have an onus to pay attention and to make sure that their patrons are safe when using their equipment. Um, I wouldn't necessarily suggest that that person necessarily have to remove their scarf or anything like that, but definitely to secure it or to put it away, make sure there's not strings hanging or whatnot. Because it seems like this person died really horrifically. So I guess, you know, in some ways, it kind of harkens me to think about, you know, roller coasters, you know. Yeah. The, the operator needs to um, make sure you're tall enough. You, you're not, you know, your, your shoelaces are t- not hanging out the thing. So you can't, you know, something horrific couldn't happen, for example. So. That's my view. It's a. It's. I agree, and 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 yeah, it's a. It's a very fine line, and and a lot of points. Uh, I'm sure of uh, of debate. The one thing I think when when I go on say a big roller coaster with my kids is I'm thinking I know my seatbelt's secure, but I'm always stressed that that somebody else's isn't, and right. somebody else isn't taking all the precautions that I am, and somebody will, you know how they say, put your phone away, do this and do that, and I see people bring their phone out when you're going up, and you're like, this could mm-hmm. end really badly. Exactly. There must be some kind of waiver that you have to sign, but I guess there is some sort of fine line where there is a responsibility that lays on the, the operator or the company owner, that type of thing. 600000 as you mentioned previously, mm. apparently this is a precedent setting. They're, they've never uh, seen such a high fine before. I was chatting mm. with the person from uh, 
the Toronto safety uh, standards, sorry, the standards, mm-hmm. the technical standards, and 600,000, I guess they threw the book at this operator. And uh, as from what I understand, they shut down. Now, I don't know if this is related. They wouldn't uh, divulge that necessarily, but one can infer perhaps that, you know, 600,000 may have shut down their business. It feels like that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I was thinking that reading your story is who knows how much of this is, is COVID-based where a lot of the, the entertainment industry has, um, you know, the, the, there's big pockets supporting Canada's Wonderland, but even even they got staggered and they, you know, they had to, to sort of crawl back to their feet to to be able to run again. I also I also wonder if the fine, Joanna, and I don't yes. I don't know if this is, is the case in, in your reporting, if you found this out, does the fine open the door even for the family to you know, push force any kind of civil action against the track. Um, is that a possibility? I'm not certain. From what I gather, like, I was just kind of poking around, and the family has really kept quiet about the situation, even at the time of the incident. They really have kept quiet about it. So I'm not exactly certain if there is any kind of follow-up to this, any kind of other, you know, potentially class action or any other civil or anything of that nature. I'm not quite certain. I haven't read anything of that nature. Like I was kind of looking around and if there's other cases and I haven't heard of anything like that. Uh, Someone had actually like sued an operator uh, when someone, their loved one had died in a sort of a, go-kart or amusement i hadn't really seen anything too much like that that i'm aware of the the tss uh tssa also notes uh who's who um who look at this these things note that even even people with long hair i mean we would assume women but Mm. but clearly men people who have hair coming all the way down their back that when they go out on the track for something as what's supposed to be as frivolous and fun as a go-kart ride, they're supposed to be told you've got to do better than that. You've got to put it in a ponytail, secure it, stick it under the helmet, but it can't be loosened out there because of the speed of the go-karts and, and all the problems that could potentially happen. You wouldn't think of that, right? You'd think, yeah. oh, I'm just going to go out and have fun. And like, why, you know, it's not a big deal, but I did read one story I was reading up and there was actually something horrific in India. And a lot of the people down there have very long hair, the, the women. And there was a go-kart crash that it was, I can't even imagine, but it was some inevitably horrific situation where the person's hair got cut. Uh, so what kind of reminds, it makes me think, you know, these go-karts, they, they're supposed to be for fun, but they're actually a serious vehicle, you know, and you really have to kind of respect that vehicle. And there's a lot of you know rights and responsibilities that we have when we use that vehicle, as much as it's for fun and, and all these things, and it's an amusement ride and all these good things, but, it's really, uh, it still is a motor vehicle that could kill you or seriously harm you. There was an incident in, uh, I think there was like a couple incidents in Durham in the last few years where people were significantly injured, seriously hurt. And uh, so it's not uh, something to take lightly, even as simple as, you know, tying back your hair, securing your clothing, just to use this vehicle is, uh, I think it's important. W- was this that. was this one of those two, the, sometimes there are two-seat cars. Mm. Um, was was the deceased in a car by herself, or was she beside her sister in the car? Do you I'm, know that? I'm not aware. That they didn't quite divulge yeah. it, and I didn't, you know, I didn't get too far with the company. They're trying to fold their operations, so I couldn't get, you know, a whole lot of specifics, but uh, not certain. Yeah, absolutely. I, I believe that track has both types of vehicles. I'm not sure, but I, they definitely have the single ones, but I'm not... I, I, I'm not certain. Yeah, because usually there's an age or, or a height requirement, and sometimes they don't mm-hmm. want to, my experience is they don't want two adults piling in because that, if anything, that can, if one person leans the other way, you can flip the card over. They are flippable. And, and obviously, they, they put a little uh, thing on there to, to make sure it doesn't go past a certain speed. And right. you, you sometimes see adults going faster, faster, but there's that that's there for a reason specifically to avoid collisions. 
Exactly. Um, thank you very much for enlightening us on this story. It's on Toronto.com right now. And uh, and again, thanks for getting up early. It's uh, it, it really jarred me reading about it. Um, and it was a real wake-up call, just the, the amount of money, but also the, the idea that you could go somewhere just for, again, something so fun and frivolous. And uh, it could end so, so awfully. Absolutely. I was shocked as well. I thought, you know, I hadn't read a story mm. like this, uh, and it really piqued my interest. And I was like, what happened here? So... Definitely a wake-up call for people. Pay attention when you go on your go-karts and think about your hair and your scarf and just be careful. Remarkable. Um, remarkably bad. Toronto.com is where uh, you can find her, Joanna Lavoie. Thank you again for doing this. We'll chat soon. <laughs> Have a good day. Thanks very much for listening to Toronto Today. We really do appreciate it. Spread the word. Uh, sign up. Subscribe for our podcast and rate us. Tell us what you'd like to hear more of on the show. We're always willing to listen. Live show tomorrow to finish out the week Friday morning on Global News Radio 640 Toronto between 530 and 9.